This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The story on everybody's minds, of course, is uh, is the tragedy that occurred. Ten people dead, 15 injured after a uh, van drove uh, up onto the sidewalk along Young Street by Finch up in North York. Uh, police uh, said they have received the first call about 1.30 yesterday afternoon, and uh, chaos ensued, death ensued, something like they had never seen in the streets of Toronto. I seen this car go on the sidewalk, and he just crumbled down one by one. Every single thing that came in his way, he just drove right on it. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable indeed. Uh, one of the eyewitnesses who uh, was on the street and saw the whole thing happen, of many, by the way, who have uh, come forward to uh, talk to us and try to explain exactly what they saw. I don't know anybody can actually explain at this point why it happened, but uh, the, the events that did occur are etched in our minds now. Joining us to uh, to talk about this, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us on the show today. My pleasure, Bill. How does something like this happen, I guess, is, is the first thing that happened. I mean, we've seen this. Uh, we saw it on London Bridge. We saw this in Barcelona. We saw it in Nice, France. Uh, but I guess the, the thing that seems to come to everybody's mind is right now is, well, it'll never happen over here. I guess we were being naive, weren't we? Well, yeah. I mean, you, you asked the question how, and, there, and there's two ways to answer that question. First of all, how, I mean, anyone can do it, right? You could do it. I could do it. My cat could do it. I mean, it's not complicated to, to rent a car and drive down the street and pick up people to mow down. So it's, the simplicity of the attack is it's kind of its beauty in a perverse kind of way. The other question to how is like, you know, why? So what's the motivation? And that we don't have really any indication of so far. Um, certainly what we've learned to date, and it's really, really very much, you know, drives and drops of information is that the guy who the suspect does not appear to have any kind of political, ideological, or religious motivation, which means it's not terrorism under the, under the criminal code. But we're going to have to wait until uh, he's interrogated, if he's going to cooperate. And if he's not, um, we'll find out what his friends and family have to say. Get a warrant against his uh, against his cell phone. Get a warrant against his email. Was there anything that he's left behind? A manifesto, scribbled notes. Uh, Zahafi Bo, the guy from Parliament Hill, left a cell phone video in which he said why he did it. So we're going to have to wait and see uh, what, what what the police will cover in their investigation. What are police doing right now? From the, the moment that, that the arrest was made yesterday, we'll talk about that in a couple of seconds, the, the methodology that was used there. Hmm. But, but what, what is there a game plan that police follow when something like this occurs? I mean, I think so. So I, I, you know, I worked for CSIS, not for law enforcement, so I've got to be really careful here in, in how sure I give you in terms of my answer. But, you know, obviously they got a guy in custody, which is good. That means they can ask some questions. And who knows, he may have uh, done a complete confession the minute they, they put the cuffs on him. Who knows? I mean, or he may, be, he may exercise his, his, his right to remain silent. We don't know that just yet. So they'll, they'll definitely try to get stuff out of him. If he's not cooperating, they'll go to the family. They'll go to friends. They'll go to his fellow students at Seneca College. They'll go to people that know him. And then, you know, then they'll, they'll try and get a warrant real quick, which I'm pretty sure a judge would grant to see, you know, what else can they learn about him. They'll talk to their to their allies, both in the GTA and, uh, you know, the RCMP, maybe CSIS, maybe the Americans, to see, uh, what do you have on this guy? Did he ever cross your radar? Was he ever under, under investigation? Did he crop up in something else? So they're going to want to... Uh, 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 basically turn over every stone bill to figure out what can we find out about this guy to understand better why he did what he did, if he doesn't told them already. Uh, well, I mean, we've seen some of the stuff that journalists have already uncovered, uh, people that, that knew him at the college and others, so clearly police are probably two steps ahead of those people to to ascertain as much as they can about this guy and build a profile on him. 
Yeah, and I, and I'd be you know I don't I don't want to you know cast the media or anybody in, in in a false light, but I'd be really careful about some of the theories that I've already seen on Twitter out there. Um, we don't know anything right now. You know, did he suffer from Asperger syndrome? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. If he did, so what? I mean, is that is that a motive? Is that is that a rationale? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a psychiatrist. There's talk about him being one of these involuntary celibate people. Who cares? I mean, is that a motive? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, we just don't know at this point. So I just caution Canadians to just, you know, look at the information that you're consuming. How real is it? How accurate is it? And what's the motive of the people who are posting it? So uh, just be careful of what you're reading, what you consume. Well, that's all about context, isn't it, Phil? I mean, have we not been talking for the last number of months about about the stuff that gets posted on social media, especially on Facebook, and how how it can obviously be false stuff that's put up there and it looks official, so we just assume it is. And and we we eat it up, uh, and and I think that's what's happening here in this rush to try to find out and maybe to answer some of these questions that are floating in our heads right now. We're willing to grasp onto just about anything, and that and that can be a mistake. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Look, Bill, I worked in intelligence for thirty two years, and, and the only so the cardinal rule about intelligence is that your information has to be from a reliable source, and and you have to be able to corroborate it from multiple sources. So the fact that you tell me something. You may be the best guy on the planet, but I don't know what your motive is. I don't know why you're telling me this. So I'm, I'm advising Canadians to act as intelligence <laughs> intelligence officers. Ask questions as to, you know, the, the origin of the information. Uh, did the person who posted have any reason to know? Are they just, you know, talking out of their nether regions kind of thing? So, you know, you guys in the media are the same thing, right? You try to corroborate the information that you have before you, you go with it, and that's the best practice. And I think that, that all Canadians should follow the same practice. Absolutely. And and that process is unfolding. I guess we'll find out a little bit more after his court appearance today, and uh, and I'm, I'm sure Chief Saunders and others will be uh, making some public statements on this. Is is this the new kind of, of uh, terrorism? And I know some people are reticent to even use that phrase, but I mean, somebody does something like this with uh, clearly the intent of mass murder. Uh, but we've seen it a number of times right now. And I mean, you know, when you use that term, play word association, Phil, in the past we thought of planes going into buildings and or, you know, bombs going off and uh, it just it just seems as a vehicular homicide seems to be the trend now. Yeah, I th- I think it is though. I, I think whether this is terrorism, which it doesn't look like at this point, given the definition of terrorism under Canadian law, um, any kind of a- attack or any act of mass violence, it seems that people have realized. You know what? It takes an actual skill to fly a plane. First of all, if it's a commandeer plane, it's kind of problematic. Um, in a country like Canada, getting hold of an AR-15 is problematic. It's not impossible. So. What people have realized is that let's keep it simple, stupid. And and also, if you look at terrorist groups around the world, like Islamic State, like Al-Qaeda, they're going online saying, yeah, just do that. You know, rent a car, drive your own car, steal a car. A guy hijacked a, a truck in Berlin a couple of Christmases ago and mowed down people at a Christmas market. So they're, you know what, it, it basically it's a race to the bottom in terms of how you do these things. And if you're a guy that's seeking to do this, whether you're a terrorist or you're a guy that's just, you know, a little bit off, you're going to want to do something which has the greatest chance of success. And the greatest chance of success is getting behind the wheel and mowing down people on a sidewalk. Because A, it's almost impossible to stop, and B, it doesn't take any special skills. So uh, we, we haven't seen the end of this, though. I, I hate to say this. I'm sure I'll be talking to you in the future about this. Um, but it seems to be the way that we're going. How do you do something about this? I mean, we saw the reaction to it yesterday. 
after the incident as police were investigating up at Young and Finch. Uh, of course, there were a large number of people that were going to the ACC for the hockey game last night, and, and we saw that uh, that they took some precautions there. I mean, they had some streets blocked off with uh, with fire trucks and, and police cruisers and things of this nature. You can't do that all the time. I, I mean, but it, there has to be, I think, at some point, Phil, a discussion about how cities are going to deal with this. And, and I don't know if you can prevent it, but at least try to mitigate the possibility of it happening. Yeah, yeah, I understand why people are asking those questions. And you can certainly lock down the ACC, and you can lock down the Rogers Center, and you can you know, lock down Queen's Park, and you know whatever is in Hamilton you want to lock down, I have no idea. But how do you lock down Jump Street? How do you, I mean, just imagine the cost if you wanted to put concrete ballers or fencing along the sidewalk on Young Street, which, as we all brag in Canada, is the longest street in the world. Just think of the cost of that alone. Secondly, think of the cost in terms of psychological. Do you want to walk down a street that has concrete surrounding you all the time just because to prevent the one in a bazillion chance that someone's going to drive a truck down it? So I think we have to be, we have to step back. This is tragic. I'm not trying to minimize the loss of life or the injuries. But let's not think that this is going to happen every day. It doesn't. That's not going to. That's not think it's going to happen in every city. It doesn't. And so we can't let our reaction basically turn us into a fortress Canada, because then that, that causes all kinds of other problems for us. So, you know, it's easy. I mean, maybe it's easy for me to say because I worked in this as long as I did. But I'm not going to change my lifestyle, though. I'm not going to stop going to cafes, walking down the street, because the chances of being hit by this guy are probably the same as being hit by a, by a bolt of lightning or a meteorite. And it's not going to change the way I live. Well, there has to be some sense of practicality here. I mean, you know, I know that that was the reaction in London after uh, that that van went down there and, and mowed down some people on the bridge right by the Parliament buildings. And I know they blocked that off and they put some balustrades up there. But eventually they're down uh, because people say, okay, I guess the threat is over. I mean, but you're right. I mean, it's it, you can't do that. You can't lock a city down, can you? No. And, and, and besides, if I'm a bad guy and you've locked down the ACC, or you've locked down Westminster Bridge, or you've locked down whatever, I go one block over, or I go two blocks over. So that happened in Manchester, where the actual concert venue, this is a, a year and a half ago, the actual concert venue was really well protected, but the square outside was not. So you protect the square, so he goes across the street. So you protect the street, he goes one block over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just yeah. that you're displacing the threat, you're not actually doing anything about it. So, again, as a Canadian, um, very proud Canadian, I have no desire to live in a country where we're going we're gonna to basically live under this fear scenario because it's, it's as tragic as yesterday was, it really is a one-off. It's not, a, it's not a trend in Canada. Maybe it'll become one. I sincerely hope not. But I think for the time being, let's just, you know, take a deep breath, sit back and say, okay, what happened? What does this mean? And, you know, what, what, what can we do that's reasonable to try to prevent something else? And of course you want to prevent it. You don't want to sit back. I don't want to be talking to you after the fact. I want to be talking to you, you know, after something has been, been foiled. But there are reasonable things to do, and I think there are unreasonable things to do. And, and there are precautions that are being taken. I mean, you've talked to us in the past about the five eyes and about the, the, the security network and the intelligence network that goes on worldwide uh, to try to keep uh, authorities posted as to what's happening. They say this guy was not known to people, but that seems to be our best defense right now is the sharing of information. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of Canadians get upset when we share with the Americans because there's a long time on stuff. But the bottom line, Bill, we don't share, we don't know. We're not large enough as in terms of our law enforcement, security intelligence. To, you know, we don't have the numbers that the Americans do and that the Brits have. So these are partners that we rely on. They're, they're great partners. They've been around for a long time, and I'm very happy that they're part of our, our sharing relationship. Yeah, we do it. It's rule-based, and you do it on a need-to-know basis. But uh, I, I think it's important for us to share, and Canadians have to realize that we have to give to get. And so we're really lucky we have those partners. 
Is there a fear of, of copycats? I mean, there, there are, to be fair here, there are some unhinged people that have access to social media and to the internet that would see something like this and say, hey, maybe that's going to be my my path to, to fame. I mean, there are people that have that mindset. I mean, the guy that shot John Lennon did it because he wanted to be famous. I mean, that that happens sometimes. We, we maybe can't understand that kind of logic, but we know it exists. I think so. And, and, and we may find out that this was copycat. I mean, again, we don't know his motivation, but he may have downloaded stuff in the last little while. We thought, hey, you know, look what happened in, in, in you know, Barcelona. Or look what happened in London. Hey, I can do that. And I've got a grievance or I'm pissed off or whatever it is. You know, I'm angry at the world. I'm going to follow in, in the footsteps of someone else. So even though it's not terrorism, it follows a, a, a classic terrorist modus operandi. So, yeah, we may find out that, in fact, he was trying to copycat it. And I say, let's have the police do their investigation and, and hopefully we'll learn more. Do we expect to hear more chatter from, from those places when something like this happens? I mean, invariably, you know, there are groups out there that actually will try to take credit for something like this, even though they may not have had a part in it. Yeah, they might. You might get a claim of responsibility, but I think we have to judge, is it, is it realistic? Look, it, it takes nothing to claim something, right? You, you could claim it if you wanted to, Bill. Um, just the fact that you put on Twitter, this is me, doesn't mean it was you. So I think we have to be careful in terms of uh, recognizing claims. A lot of stuff is just done for propaganda purposes, so... Let's take it. Let's not take it at face value. We've got a, an investigation ongoing right now, obviously, from the Toronto Police Services. Uh, are security forces, or intelligence forces involved in this, too? They might. I might be surprised if they didn't run his name by thesis to see if he showed up on their radar for under a national security investigation. I'd be, I'd be skeptical, but they probably have a, a due diligence. So within Toronto, there's something called the INSET, the Integrated National Security Enforcement Team, mm. which is led by the RCMP. All the local services are involved. thesis is involved. So I'm pretty sure they're involved, just to, just to cover their bases, to make sure that they're asking the questions, what did, who knew what, when, and, uh, you know, even if it's not unlikely, it's, it's a good question to ask. I just, I wanted to touch on, on the arrest, because we have that on video, obviously. I'm sure everybody has seen that now, that uh, somebody with a phone camera was, was actually following what was going on here. Uh, and and the, uh, the, the effort that the officer did, and actually the technique that uh, the officer used to actually apprehend this individual, uh, was was quite remarkable, and uh, I, I guess this is the essence of what training's all about. He did not overreact. He he acted properly, uh, assessed a situation under very very high you know stress situation, and 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 brought this guy in alive. And I and, and obviously that's going to be helpful in this investigation. Uh, yeah, I mean it's phenomenal, phenomenal um, act by the police officer. It shows his professionalism shows a whole bunch of stuff. So kudos to the officer. And to me, what is really important is that the, the suspect is alive. So they can, they can ask him questions, or you can't ask a dead man questions. So I think this is a fantastic uh, thing by the Toronto police, and I think this guy should be commended for what he did. He showed a lot of composure. He, no one was at risk. The public was not at risk, so he, was, he, he holstered his gun, and he, and he ended up arresting the guy. So really impressive work on, on behalf of Toronto police. So much more that we want to find out, and you're right, I guess we just have to be patient and wait for the investigation to uh, take its course, and then we'll get this information. Phil, always appreciate uh, your time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Take care, Bill. You too. Phil Gursky, uh, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a guy who spent an awful lot of his life uh, in intelligence work uh, and knows all about these sorts of events, and uh, I would suggest that he's probably bang on that, uh, that CSIS has been contacted. Uh, We already know, they said, that this guy is not known to authorities uh, but that obviously is cold comfort, I guess, to, to what happened yesterday. Much more to come as we continue our coverage about uh, the attack in Toronto yesterday and, of course, the implications of, and uh, we'll obviously be getting the names of some of the other victims. One has been identified already, uh, somewhat of a personality, a person who uh, was known in the sporting world 
and uh, we'll certainly get the uh, the identities of the others as we go along. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. We continue our coverage of the uh, terrifying incidents uh, from Toronto yesterday afternoon. Joining us is uh, Mark Carcassil from uh, Global News, and uh, we'll get to Mark in just a couple of seconds. But uh, to suggest this caught everybody off guard is, is I guess, a massive understatement, uh, including Toronto Chief of Police Mark Saunders, who apparently was out of town yesterday, uh, was informed of this, and actually, I guess, got on a plane in New York and came right back into Toronto. Uh, and he assessed the situation on the scene late yesterday afternoon. It's alleged that the, that, uh, the accused uh, drove on the sidewalks, and it looks intentional. And as a result, uh, 10 people are, are now not with us. What a scene. What an incident. What uh, Just almost surreal to be watching the coverage. Mark Carcassel does join us now, of course, from Global News, uh, who was uh, there yesterday. Mark, uh, in all the years you've been doing this, you've been covering breaking news, uh, in varying kinds of things that have happened. Uh, but I don't know if anything prepares you for a scene like what you saw yesterday afternoon. Yeah, you know what, Bill? It's, it's sad to say, and while I personally have never covered anything like this, uh, a big sentiment that's been expressed here at the scene uh, over the last day or so is that it was it was only a matter of time before something like this was bound to happen. Uh, we've seen incidents like this around the world uh, for various causes and reasons, obviously, and we don't really know why. That's a question that's being asked, not just by police, but by the people here today. But um, this is something that, unfortunately, in the world we live in today, uh, a lot of people expected to happen at, at some point. They just, I think, you know, no one ever expected to happen to them. And when it happens uh, along Young Street, sort of in the northern end of town, it, it, it it catches people by surprise. People are still having a hard time coming to grips with it today. This is an area that, you know, gets very busy around lunchtime. Yesterday was uh, probably the best uh, weather day we've had uh, this spring so far, and so there were a lot of people out just uh, enjoying lunch, walking around. There's uh, Mel Lastman Square close to Shepherd Avenue where a lot of people hang out for lunch. You get food trucks outside, so it is very much a, a, an outdoorsy type of, you know, area for lunch uh, when the weather's good and, um, you know, just struck with tragedy yesterday. Well, and, and yeah, for people that have been in that area and, and know that part of Young Street, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, shoulder to shoulder at the best of times uh, because of all the activity that's going on up by, uh, by Mount Lastman Square. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, the lunchtime crowd, and it was probably the first time this year that it actually started acting like spring, so everybody's outside and enjoying themselves. The, the, the thing that struck me yesterday, though, in, in the reporting I saw from you and from Farah there on, on site, is the enormity of the crime scene. And this, I mean, we think of that intersection, maybe Young Finch, Young Shepherd, but we're told by police now, Mark, this is a, a crime scene they, they figure is about 16 blocks long. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I guess Finch and Shepherd are the two major intersections, if you will, but there are a lot of smaller blocks in between. And when you stand down here and you look down the street, you can you can sort of barely see the other end of the crime scene from the other. It is a long stretch. This went on for a long time, and that's why you've got such large numbers of, of people injured. At least 25 people uh, that we know of uh, that were hit by that vehicle. The latest numbers coming from Toronto police are that 10 people have passed away from their injuries, many of them dying on scene, not even making it to hospital for treatment. Uh, and you've got 25 injuries as well. And this morning we learned the identity of one of those 10 deceased uh, Anne-Marie D'Amico, who worked uh, in the offices of a U.S. investment company called Invesco uh, here along Young Street, and she is just one of many names uh, and faces that we will learn of over the coming days, and her family just one of many that uh, are obviously devastated by 
an unexpected and senseless loss. Mark, do we know the, the identities of any of the other victims? I mean, we saw that name today, and of course we reported it here on CHML. Uh, but but uh, obviously wondering about some of the other identities. I, I know police haven't uh, made any official statements on this, but, but have we been able to ascertain any of that? Not at this point. Uh, Anne-Marie D'Amico is the first one. These things usually sort of trickle out slowly. Usually as posts on social media come out, people offering their, their condolences as they are here at the scene uh, at, a, at a memorial. Um, those names will come out, especially once uh, Alec Manassi and the accused uh, appears in court. We'll get a lot more information about uh, those involved and the charges against him. Um, but uh, at this point, uh, Mr. Miko is the uh, the first name to to come out publicly. What's the scene right there now? I, I, I've seen some, some some of the pictures, I guess, uh, on social media already this morning, Mark. And as you mentioned, there's a almost like a, a makeshift memorial, I guess, that's being set up. Yeah, we're pretty much on the northeast corner of Young and Finch, and there's a sort of condo community here called Olive Park. And this is where people have, I guess this is the start of the devastation, and that's why this has sort of been the place where the memorial has has cropped up. It's a place that a lot of people ended their day yesterday, and a lot of people today are starting their day. There are Bristol boards with all sorts of handwritten messages in many different languages, because this is a very multicultural uh, area of the city. You've got a large Korean population, a large Russian population, a large Persian population in the area, and so you've got notes in all different languages, flowers laid against a brick wall, uh, stuffed animals, candles. Uh, this is where people have decided to channel their grief. You know, a lot of people are taken aback by this, and this is where many people are offering their condolences and, and showing that this is a community that is, is coming together and won't let a, an incident like this define them. As, as I speak, um, Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath has come to the scene uh, to pay her respects uh, and offer her condolences to the victims. This has sort of been the, the hub of the activity in the aftermath, kind of washing away the devastation that we saw yesterday and, and reclaiming this space as a, as a space where people can, can find comfort and, and togetherness in this time. Mark, contrast with what you see now, almost, a, I guess, a numbness among, among the people that are there this morning. Uh, contrast that with what you saw yesterday and as, as you approach the scene, uh, the, the, I guess the shock that, and disbelief most people must have been experiencing then. Yeah, I can only imagine for the people who were here when it actually happened, the things they saw, the things that they heard. Um, as you walked along Young Street yesterday, shortly in the minutes after it happened, it was just utter devastation. Shoes all over the road and sidewalk from the victims who uh, were hit by this speeding vehicle. Uh, people laying on the ground, many of them motionless, as I mentioned earlier, uh, many of them dying at the scene, not even making it to hospital. Uh, you know, their lifeless bodies on the ground with people around them just trying to do whatever they can to uh, comfort them or, or offer some sort of aid to them. Uh, the most gruesome injuries I think I've ever seen in my 13 years as a as a reporter. Uh, it was just it was just devastating and totally unexpected. I mean, you can never prepare for something like this, uh, and I think that that showed yesterday. But what was also very touching was to see people, many of whom who you know didn't know first aid or anything like that, but just needed to be there for these people to offer them some sort of comfort uh, in what was for many their their final moments. You try as as a journalist uh, to to 
almost separate yourself from what, what you're covering so you can be analytical about this and, and, and try to, you know, paint a picture for us. But, but it was obvious yesterday that, that, that you could not withhold the emotion that, that you guys were feeling on the site there. The, 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 the shocked look on your faces as you were talking about this and talking to some of the people around there, it's, it, it just consumed everybody, I think. It's, it's hard to hold back, uh, and, you know, it's hard not to be sad and not to be angry or emotional in some way because these are all just people, all 25 people that we know of that were impacted by this. These are people who have families of their own. These are people who were just uh, on a lunch break from work, headed back to work, leaving work, maybe just having a stroll with uh, their significant other, just people trying to live their lives, just a normal life, not expecting anything, not expecting that they were walking in any sort of danger zone. And within a matter of seconds, their lives are lost or altered forever. Uh, and, and I think that is what makes so many people so emotional because it, it, it could have been anyone. And we're hearing stories from people who are saying that I walk that path every day. Uh, and maybe had I gone out five minutes earlier or been five minutes later, I could have been one of those 25. So I think that's what makes people most emotional. It could have been anyone. This is just a bunch of people who were just going about a... Mark, you mentioned that uh, that obviously the uh, the accused is going to make a court appearance a little bit later on this morning. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, well, I guess there's a city council meeting, so Mayor Tory, I guess, is overseeing that. I think it started just a couple of minutes ago, and I know that's your usual haunt during this time of day. But yeah. but is there is there any anything official from the city in in a response to this? Uh, well, aside from offering you know condolences to the victims, there there's. There's not much for the city to do. I know that today's uh, council meeting will be altered. I don't think there's going to be any actual business dealt with on the council floor today. This is sort of going to be used as a, a day of mourning from, for council, and uh, they'll sort of begin the normal process of business uh, tomorrow. Uh, and I, I, I think many people here in Toronto understand that. I mean, how can you go from the tragedy that struck the city, you know, one of the worst in, in a long time, uh, if not the worst, and then just uh, pick up and, and, and go back to work today. Many of the businesses along Young Street today will be closed, uh, and that was something that Mayor Tory sort of asked the business owners to do here was, you know, keep the lights off, and uh, especially last night, and, and, and just, you know, let police do their thing, and, and let's show a bit of sort of mourning and compassion for for the victims and, and the witnesses. I mean, you can't forget the people who, again, saw and heard those things. They're, while they may not have any physical injuries, their lives will never be the same after what they experienced. Let's, let's, I want to ask you about that. As, as you guys got onto the scene yesterday and, and you saw this, and, and you're trying to deal with your own emotions, and, and you mentioned off the top, Mark, that there, there's no way that you can prepare for something like this, obviously. But the first responders who showed up seconds after this occurred, uh, in answer to, to the call, not just police, but everyone else that was involved in this, uh, right. from all accounts, acted with a, a professionalism as if they knew exactly what to do. And, 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 and that was, that was a, a story in and of itself, the way that they handled the situation. Yeah, and that's, you know, you can look at it and say, well, that's what they're trained to do. That's their job. And, and, and that is correct. And, and those are the people who, you know, the old cliche is they run toward the danger when everyone else runs away from it. But it can't be easy for them to deal with the things that, that they saw. These were uh, gruesome injuries. These aren't your everyday slip and fall injuries. These are catastrophic injuries, uh, you know, that people are not going to recover from physically and emotionally. And it's got to take a toll on them. Uh, and when you speak about the action of first responders, not only those who obviously tended to the, the injured and dying, but uh, 
there's a specific Toronto police officer who made the arrest of the suspect who is getting a lot of credit today for uh, his calmness and his cool-headedness in that situation. I'm sure we've all seen the video and heard the audio from those videos uh, where the suspect is pointing some sort of item which from a distance looked like it could have been a gun at the officer, trying to egg the officer on. It appears goading him into, into shooting him. He's, he's actively telling him, shoot me in the head, I have a gun in my pocket. And that particular police officer who ascertained that that wasn't a gun being pointed at him and, and put his gun away and, and took that suspect down in a, in a peaceful manner is being lauded for his actions today, not just for saving a life that there's probably a lot of people out there saying didn't deserve to be saved, but it'll also give the city and, of course, the loved ones of the victims some answers, hopefully, about why this had to happen. He, the, the officer in charge, he took, he actually, he, he controlled the situation, and that was what was so remarkable about this. Uh, came upon the guy, as you say, the, the first inclination might have been, uh, he did pull his fire around, but to, to fire off around, and he did not. He ascertained exactly what was in the guy's hand, I guess. But actually, he had the composure to actually reach back into the car if he saw, the, you have seen the video, I know, and turn yeah. off turn off his siren so he could he could speak more clearly to the to the uh, to the guy who the uh, alleged assailant in this situation that uh, was uh, in a situation like that to be as calm and collected and as professional as that officer was was truly remarkable it was really something to see and and it's something you know there are a lot of people calling him uh, a hero for those actions today because again now we can possibly finally get some answers but uh, just watching how how calm he was and even him telling uh, the the suspect Alec Manassian, as as Manassian is telling him, shoot me, shoot me. You actually hear him say, no, get down. You know, he's telling him, I'm not going to shoot you. Get down. Uh, whether that's because, I mean, obviously he saw the suspect from a much closer angle than any of us did. Maybe he knew from the get go that that wasn't a gun. It it was apparently a cell phone, according to witnesses. Uh, but just, just the the the, cool, the coolness and the calmness there really really struck a lot of people and. Uh, you know, really, really showed that a properly trained police officer really can do, you know, good things. You mentioned about the impact this is going to have. Obviously, the the, the injuries, the personal injuries, and and the deaths are tragic in and of themselves. But uh, this is, as you mentioned, Mark, something that people can't wipe out of their memories. I mean, we, we've talked about people that experience uh, traumatic events like this, and post-traumatic stress disorder is in order. This this is something that's going to be around for a long time, and it's going to have an impact on people probably for years. I would say so. I mean, we we saw witnesses uh, who we spoke to yesterday at Global News just breaking down and crying, just describing what they saw. And that's in the immediate moments. And a lot of times these things take a little bit of time to to manifest. Uh, But we saw people at the scene just breaking down in tears about what they saw. Uh, These are things that, you know, you, you, you see in movies and you think you can handle it or you see it in the news and it's happened somewhere else. And you think, well, it's sad, but you know, it's not going to happen here, or if it does, it won't be such a big deal. And then it happens, and you just, you can see people breaking down mentally and emotionally right before your eyes, and you can tell that these are people who, again, may not have suffered any physical injuries, but are going to carry on emotional trauma for a long time to come, possibly the rest of their lives. Well, including journalists. I mean, this is not something, as you mentioned off the top, that you've seen every day, and, and it has an impact on you. I know it certainly did on Farah with your reporting yesterday. Uh, and and that's that's something that you can't wipe out of your mind. I mean, that's going to be with you. I'm sure that every time you close your eyes, you see what you saw yesterday. I'm I'm person just speaking personally. I'm you know I'm pretty good at sort of putting that that stuff to the side and uh, you know doing my job and not letting it affect me. But it it is definitely one of those things that that you remember. And in this job, you know, doing it like I said, I've I've done it for 13 years. 
I thought up until yesterday I'd seen everything. I've, I've seen bodies before. You know, I've, I've told very tragic tales before. But it's it's always something that, that, that you remember, definitely. And, and, you know, I'll never forget those images, that's for sure. Well, uh, great reporting from everybody on scene yesterday uh, under very dire circumstances. I really appreciate the, the great job you guys did yesterday. And thanks so much for spending some time with us today, Mark. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Mark Carcassel, uh, global news reporter, who, uh, along with uh, global anchor Faranasi, was on the scene yesterday. I think one of the more poignant shots that I saw watching the news yesterday uh, was was the shot of fire. She was right there on Young Street, of course, doing her reporting, as was Mark. And and right behind her, there was an orange tarp. There was a body, right about, what, 20 feet behind her, 30 feet behind her? Uh, and it, <laughs> there were that many of them that I guess you, it was just part of the scene, no matter where you looked. Uh, the, to see that sort of carnage, and it was uh, it was almost surreal to actually see that sort of thing going on, and to think this is Toronto that's happening. It's it's really hard to get your head around that. But as we mentioned, uh, much more to be learned. Uh, the court appearance uh, by uh, Manassian will uh, happen later on this morning, and I'm sure we'll get some information. And uh, I know that Chief Saunders uh, had a makeshift uh, news conference yesterday on the site. But uh, there's a lot more investigating to be done about this individual, about uh, the motivation for the act, and so much more. And uh, that's information that's going to, I would come out in dribs and drabs, I guess, uh, in the passage of time over the next few days. But uh, an awful lot of people with stories to tell and memories that will never go away with that terrible tragedy. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There's much more going on, of course, uh, as we continue to follow events in Toronto yesterday after the, uh, the tragic event. But uh, there's lots more going on, including uh, a lawsuit that we sort of expected was going to happen. Former progressive conservative leader Patrick Brown, uh, now an independent MPP in the Ontario legislature, uh, has uh, filed papers in suing CTV for about $8 bucks over the story they reported that of alleged sexual impropriety that effectively uh, ruined his career and uh, a number of other allegations that are made in the lawsuit. Joining us to talk about this is Alex Pearson. Alex is the host of On Point with Alex Pearson, which is heard on the Global News Radio, including this radio station, CHML, every weeknight. Alex, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for the time today. Hey there. How are you? I'm doing fine. Yeah. I, I, I want to get some insight from you on this. about Because mm-hmm. I, I know you covered the story extensively as it was happening on, on your show. Uh, and had Patrick on the show, I guess, on a couple of occasions uh, to talk about this. And there's so much uh, to d- discuss here. There's obviously the allegations, the impact of that, and I guess that's all going to come out in court. But but there's a sub-story to this, which I think is, is a, a, a big part of this too, Alex, and that was the way in which these allegations were reported. And I think that's uh, something that even those most of us in the business, I think, uh, looked at it and say, well, you know, that, that was a little shaky and, and maybe even took umbrage with the way that it was done. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing that you know in this business when you're reporting, when you get a story um, and an allegation against someone as high profile as Patrick Brown, who was on track to become the next premier of this province, when you are about to go to to air with a story um, with salacious allegations that are very, very serious, because at the time, Bill, they essentially um, made it sound like he was a predator of a young girl, underage girl. The insinuation was that he was plying a young girl with liquor and trying to take advantage of her. So it made him sound like a predator, like a pedophile. And that that if you're going to go to air with that kind of story, you better make sure that it is checked and checked and checked and checked. And as we saw with the CTV story, um, we know that 
the allegations fell apart within a couple of days that, oh, it just turns out that the girl wasn't underage and it didn't quite happen the way it sa- it was said to have happened. That one of the people working on the story, a producer named Rachel Aiello, um, was a friend um, and had a relationship with one of the complainants. That, too, was left out. I mean, that's a conflict of interest. Those are not the kinds of mistakes that you can make if you're about to bring a politician down and destroy a reputation and a career. And so I've read the statement of claim, and um, it names a number of people from CTV, from the upper echelons of management right through to the lead anchor, Lisa Laflamme, to the reporter, Glenn McGregor, to the producer, Rachel Aiello, the complainant, and it goes on and on and on. This is a pretty big lawsuit, and this is one of those things that all of the media will be watching very carefully because um, once it gets into a courtroom, it's one thing to read the allegations on the page, but it's going to expose a lot, and it's going to mean all of those people get on the stand. It's going to open up uh, areas that I don't think CTV would probably want open. They'll play recordings. They'll dissect every piece, and I think if they haven't got it right, it exposes them um, to a real credibility issue that will be and could be very, very damaging. You know Patrick better than most of us. So you've known him for I a do. long time, and, and and you mentioned, of course, on your program that you you actually worked on his his team for a little while before you got yep. uh, back onto the radio on a full time basis. Uh, talk to me about what the, the the guy, the man that you knew, yep. and the, and the impact you saw on this because you saw him mm-hmm. as, as this unfolded, uh, trying to respond to it, try to react. We saw what he looked like in front of the cameras, Alex, but the, I'm, I'm sure that was only a piece of the picture. Well, it was, and, and in the statement of claim, he was presented with the allegations at about 4, 4.30-ish, um, and the story was going to air, you know, at, by 10 o'clock. That is not was, that the first inkling, was that the first inkling he got of this? Yes, yes, and so again... If you're in a newsroom, and I've, I've done plenty of investigative pieces, and I've done plenty of litigious pieces where, uh, and certainly for Global News when I worked for Global, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Global is a very cautious company. Um, they tend to hold back a bit, but I know that I have to go through my news director, my, um, my managing editors. You have to be right. And if that means you hold off for a day, because CTV was not in a position where the story was exclusive and, and it was going to be scooped. They had the story. It was theirs. No, no, one more day would not have heard it. So it was really, I think what the, the um, Brown team will argue is, why couldn't you give one more day for him to have adequate time to respond? Because four hours, when you're looking at these kinds of allegations, First of all, they date back a number of years. He'd be saying, what? What are you talking about? Who are these people? What are these? You, you know, he should have been, I think they will argue, given enough time to respond. But they were going to, st- that, to air with that story that night. And in the statement of claim, it lays out every single um, promotion that that story got. So what we do in the news is a lot of times when you're watching your uh, evening time show, it'll come on, coming up on the 11 o'clock news, we talk to, uh, you know, about this, this and this. And they had already started promoting the story even before 10 o'clock. And so Patrick Brown's team are going to argue he was not given nearly enough time to have a fair... Um, amount of time to to talk about the allegations. And so when you saw Patrick Brown in that moment, and you can imagine what it would be like to be facing those kinds of allegations, certainly as a man, would be devastating. 
And there's nothing he could have done, nothing he could have said that would have come out looking good. Well, we should mention to our listeners as well that, I mean, there are different uh, procedures that can be taken into account. Yeah. Uh, as, as you mentioned, you've done a lot of investigative reporting in, in your years. Uh, and, and one of the tactics that is often used is to call the individual and say, uh, we got this story and we've talked to some people. Can we get a comment? And at least that gives some, somebody a heads up that it's happening. But uh, the, the, the document I'm kind of using is, is this. And I know this is all going to come out in the trial, I guess, uh, in the lawsuit. Well, uh, but but was, the, the stuff that was in McLean's, yeah. right? You, you, you saw that. The chronology, I think it was Paul yep. Wells from McLean's did it. And and I, I as I read through that, and I've read it, I don't know how many times I've read it over the uh, last couple of weeks, Alec, I, I kept thinking, well, wait a second, why didn't they call so-and-so? Did they check with so It seems to me as if there was a rush to get this thing on the air, and I'm not sure that they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. That's that's the, the feeling I got from it. That is absolutely the feeling. And, and, and that's everyone... absent of, of the accusations. I mean, I, that's, that's separate apart. I'm talking about the way CTV handled it. Yes, and, and that is a, a question and a, a conversation many, many people have had. Uh, about this as to like what if you're gonna do this why didn't you make sure you at least got the age right like how could you screw up the age and not have known that she was not underage she was not in high school and then the other one was of course this Rachel Aiello who was this producer on the piece who had a pretty tight relationship with uh, at least at least one of the complainants and so um, that is not just a small thing, because if you're in a situation, and that's why I always say, look, there was a time when I worked on the campaign for Patrick Brown, and there have been times, even throughout this whole thing, that I've had to remove myself because of conflict of interest mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that, that nothing is, no lines are crossed. And that is our responsibility in the media. And the fact that that wasn't put out there, that you know one of the producers on the piece uh, had a relationship with one of the women... That's not a small thing, and so it chips away at the credibility. Now, will this get into a courtroom? I don't know. I'm not sure that a a national network really wants to see its lead anchor on the stand, um, because there are, in fact, uh, said to be recordings um, of of, of Lisa Leflam talking to, I guess, one of the complainants. Um, Those have been played out online. Um, and she will have to answer questions. You know, did you coach this person? Like, it will get, once you get into a courtroom, it's kind of like you can ask whatever you want. And it can be very, very damaging. And that's why so often you will see settlements happen with Hollywood stars who say they've been accused by someone and it's not true. They just don't want it to get into court because it can add a lot more problems uh, either which way. So I don't even know if this will get into a courtroom, but it's certainly a very serious matter. It's certainly serious in this age of fake news. And, um, you know, if I'm Patrick Brown, I, I do think he's got a very strong case. He has no other choice. It's not just that his um, career was destroyed. His reputation was destroyed. And the bigger part for me, um, above and beyond this, Bill, is that it could have, and we won't know, but had a very big political impact on the province as a whole. Because, you know, if the PC party, which by all polling, is set to win uh, the next election. This particular report uh, being so damaging, um, you know, if that had given and turned the course of an election, that's a big deal. 
Oh, absolutely it is. It And, and that's why I say I'm, I'd be surprised if it actually got to this point either. I mean, lawyers yeah. will be in discussion here. Yeah. And, and I know that you did an interview with Patrick uh, just yeah. uh, just after this, and, and he mentioned the, that he was considering legal action. So it's not mm-hmm. surprising that the, these papers were filed. No. Uh, but it's 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 opening a Pandora's box, I mean, from CTV standpoint, if they want to go through with this. I know the, their immediate response yesterday was, we're going to defend our actions, uh, you know, uh, yeah. vociferously. And, and I guess what else do you expect them to say? But uh, this is going to get ugly if they decide to get, get right down into the, into the mud with these guys. Well, I can tell you, there is nothing, nothing more terrifying for a reporter than, you know, being called into the office and, and having a, a legal letter put in front of you and saying, can you address this? Do you know anything about this? What does this mean? And then to have to sit around with lawyers and talk about, okay, did you say this? How did this work? I mean, it's very, very scary because... Um, you know, you're really put on the spotlight. No one wants to find themselves in that position. So you can bet there's some very, very serious conversations going on over at CTV. But in the larger picture, there will be serious conversations happening in every newsroom. I mean, you know, I, I kind of bite my tongue when Global says, let's hold up. Like, we did not name the suspect in this uh, Toronto um, you know, carnage yesterday mm-hmm. until well, well after the rest of the media had gone with it. And that's because our newsroom is very cautious, frustrating, yes, but it's better now to be right than to be first. And yep. that, I think, is what we have to, in the media, get back to is be right, don't be first, and be wrong. Because it, it, it chips away at the very, very fabric of who we are and what we do. See, I, I, I don't know Patrick Brown that well. I mean, I've, I've, yeah. you know, I've, I've, I've interviewed him a few times. I mm-hmm. met him once, I guess, in studio when he came in here. But I, I, when the story broke, obviously, I, I took the time and actually called some some other journalists that we both know that that knew of Brown and, and know as a federal politician and of course at Queens Park, and and you know you hear stuff about everybody, Alex, anybody that's in public life. I mean, you know, the, the skeletons in the closet and everything else. And but the only thing I could really ascertain from those conversations collectively was uh, he's a guy that kind of likes to party a little bit, and you know, but not the only one. And they just kind of said, you know, so th- this is why it had never been reported. So. You know, was, were the allegations true? Who knows? I mean, obviously there were some holes in this, but for mm-hmm. the for it to come through in the manner that that it did, uh, and the and the fashion that that this happened, I, I I was again asking those same journalists that question. I said, well, how do you think? You know, what's your, your assessment of how the story was presented? And they all these are all veteran journalists. All had serious problems with the way that it was presented. Uh, especially after the fact when other people started investigating the CTV story and say, well, wait a minute, you didn't talk to this person. They were there yeah. that night. Did you? No, yeah. no. And, and they were never part of the story. Well, they were selective because they had a particular narrative that they wanted to go on. But, I, look, I know Patrick. Yeah, but I've you're going down a dark time. road if you start doing that and say, here's, well, here's the end game, and now I'm going I'm to substantiate that end game with, with the, the stuff, of the, my selective facts here. Right, but that's a dangerous game, and um, if that's in fact what happened, they're going to have to pay a very dear price for that. Um, But I know Patrick, and I've known him for some time, and there's a very big difference in someone who may, you know, get around with the ladies, and a lot of men do, and a lot of political men do, and uh, right across this country. Patrick Brown uh, hanging out with a lot of younger women is not new, and it's certainly not exclusive, but I had never, ever, had any experience in, or ever had I heard stories of underage girls. Because first of all, I wouldn't work for someone if I had ever thought that was going on. And that would have been reported a long time ago because that would have been of a criminal nature. That was not my experience. Sure, were there stories that Patrick, uh, you know, got around with the ladies? Okay, but what's the crime? If they're of age, 
and there's consent, that's not a crime. And if that's the bar we're going to set, then there'd be a lot of other people uh, in this country that are very, very nervous. So I think we have to be very, very careful about it. Um, uh, but again, uh, if, again, getting back to your point about the narrative, yeah, we have to we bear a huge responsibility in this business to get it right. The facts will speak for themselves. And, you know, I think people are now at a point uh, where they just want it right, because no one really knows where to tune in and where to get their information from, because there seems to be so many holes in what we do, and that's why we have to be better than ever before. You've got about a minute left here. I mean, yeah. if, if people who want to get some insight into this, I mean, if you watched all the President's Man, the movie about uh, Woodward and Bernstein and their investigation mm-hmm. of Watergate, or, or even the, the, the Tom Hanks movie, uh, the, the paper that's just about a couple of months ago, and yeah. you see how meticulous, first of all, the reporters are, but it's yeah. the management that says, are you sure? Have you double-checked and triple-checked yeah. this? Because yeah. the implication is, especially with the Watergate thing, is look at they didn't like Nixon anyway, and they said, if we're wrong about this, they're just going to say, well, it's because you hated Nixon, and we're going to get our butt suit off. Uh, so sure. they double-checked and triple checked it. Yeah. Uh, the, the concern here that that I see, if this goes through, this lawsuit goes through, I'm not sure who's going to be on trial here, Patrick Brown or CTV. Well, I actually think it'll be CTV uh, on trial because they're the ones who have to defend and justify what went to where, what didn't, and why they didn't uh, include the uh, facts. They're the ones on trial. Uh, Patrick Brown is considered innocent uh, until proven otherwise. So I think it's going to be a very interesting case. I'm going to hedge, I'm going to, put my bets now that this doesn't get into a courtroom. Do you really think CTV wants to have all the media in the world, (laughs) in Canada, watching and picking apart uh, the way they do their job? It can be very, very damaging, I think, in in the long run. But I do think, you know, there's nothing that managers, including our boss, Jeff, none of them want to be talking to lawyers because that costs a lot of money. They would rather us just do our jobs and do them right. Alex Pearson, it's of course. It's not worth the ratings. No, yeah. exactly. Uh, you can hear on uh, Alex Pearson with uh, on point with Alex Pearson, of course, every night, uh, weeknight here on CHML, including tonight. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again. My pleasure, Bill, always. You betcha. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.